This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Timothy Rao. He learned how to make mortise and tenon joints from his grandfather, the late Everett Rao. He's hardly stopped since and now owns the New World Barn Company, which both restores ancient structures and builds new ones in traditional ways. Rao is saddened that the 1833 house that Altamont's first doctor, Frederick Krauntz, lived in and practiced from is to be torn down. Rao would like to work with a demolition crew to save at least the post and beam frame with the idea it could be rebuilt elsewhere, perhaps at the Altamont Fairgrounds, where the public could appreciate and learn from it. So I had a very close relationship with both of my grandparents. Um, and I was very fortunate for that, as I've come to realize as I've gotten older. Um, but I had a very, very close relationship with my grandfather. We spent a lot of time on the farm together, and it just so happened that uh, because he was a barn enthusiast and kind of an agricultural historian, he knew the basics and the fundamentals of timber framing, which of course was the building form for many centuries. And um, so it, it turned out that one summer day, he decided that we were going to build uh, a framework for the farm sign that actually that still stands out in front of the farmhouse here on Lanehart Road. Uh, and that was going to be my first mortise and tenon joint. And so we, we sat down and we you know, worked side by side and he taught me the use of a mallet and chisel and some basic layout and what a mortise and tenon was. And, uh, I was instantly hooked. I, I remember the day vividly still. I, I actually recall my grandmother coming out several times to say lunch was ready, but I wasn't quite ready to put the tools down. Um, <laughs> so, uh, it really grabbed me and, and that I would say is definitely the, the start and the catalyst to what was to come um, past that. Well, that's just a wonderful story because not only are you a traditional builder, but you learned it in a traditional way, you know, handed down through <laughs> generations. And that's just such a rare way to learn these days. You know, back in that's medieval true. times, that's how knowledge was passed along. But in recent years, it's it's not been the way. So I, I just think that's wonderful. Sure. And I know you've reached... Um, great heights, both literally and figuratively with your work. The last time I wrote about you was you got the 2019 New York State Historic Preservation Award, um, part of a, a team that worked on a project that I hope you can just tell us a little bit about. Sure. Yeah, that was for the uh, Queemans House, which is located in Ravina, um, right on the Queemans Creek. And it's a, the, the oldest portion of the house is a four-story stone structure, beautiful in its own right, uh, which the, the current owners, Paul and Sylvia Lawler, have done a great job, you know, restoring and maintaining. Uh, but Paul had a vision of restoring what they refer to as the north wing of, of the uh, house complex. And that's the one that I got heavily involved in um, from a heavy timber perspective. So um, really when we started, you wouldn't have known that it was a historic house uh, wing. You wouldn't have known what the original formwork looked like. Um, but through a lot of background research uh, and you know, a lot of 
helping hands and uh, documentation, they were able to, you know, decipher what the building would have looked like uh, back in, I believe it was built in the 1670s or 1690s. Um, so we, we just set out on the course of replicating what was there and keeping as much of the original fabric as we could, but also having to fabricate, you know, to match um, the pieces, parts that were missing and had gone missing over the years. Yeah, I remember you shared pictures with me at the at the time, and it was just remarkable. It looked like kind of a modern one story garage, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. appended to this beautiful old stone house that had the gambrel roof that we think of when we think of old Dutch houses, and you know, it just looked like kind of nothing. And then you have shared pictures of when it was finished, and it was. And entirely, the whole roof line was like 90 degrees in the other direction, and it became a full more than two stories. And how did you know what the original had looked like? What, like, what kind of research? Is it looking at the foundation? Or how, how would you have figured out what it was you had to build? Well, there were, there were several cues. Um... But I have to say, the gentleman that was most instrumental in that is a gentleman by the name of John Stevens. Now, John Stevens, I think, is in his 90s now, but way back when he was in college, he actually wrote his PhD thesis on the Queeman's house. Um, and so John was heavily involved and, as a matter of fact, directly involved in the kind of the planning phase and the, the blueprinting phase um, of the project because he had so much intimate knowledge of the building you know, from 50 or 60 years ago. Um, But again, you know, his cues came from several different places. Like they were fortunate enough to have a section of the original wall plate, which essentially establishes the spacing between the structural framework uh, and the overall length of the building. So you can get quite a bit of information from that alone. Wait, what did you call Uh, it? A wall plate? What is that? A wall wall plate? Yeah, yeah, so the wall plate essentially is... um, it's it's the intersecting point between the rafters and the vertical portion of your sidewall of the building. Okay. Um, so in in the case of a timber frame structure, that's going to have a bunch of holes or mortises punched into it that accommodates where a post goes or perhaps where a brace goes or maybe there's a window opening. Um, so there's a lot of information you can gain, um, even if the the member isn't being used in its original orientation. Which in the case of that building, it was it was certainly not. It had been turned 90 degrees as you had mentioned but the original wall plate was still inside of the structure and so that was uh invaluable in determining some of the information we needed to to replicate what was there originally wow and then when you see pictures of how it's finished on the inside all your um beam post and beam work is that what you would call it is exposed yeah and it's just breathtaking to see these really large hand-hewn pieces of wood. I didn't even know they had timbers that big anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we're used to seeing two-by-fours. And then um, I think you called it a jamless fireplace. Could you just talk about a little, you know, what that is? Because I've never seen anything like that. Sure. Well, I mean, it's really the one of the oldest forms of cooking within a house. you know, people are used to seeing perhaps an old wood-fired cook stove, 
or a cast iron wood stove, which some people still heat with, obviously. Um, but predating that, there really wasn't an option other than to put some type of masonry material on top of your floor and start a fire inside the room, right, right on the floor itself, you know, uh, being cautious of setting fire to the rest of the structure, of course. But, uh, yeah, and then the, the smoke would simply have to find its way you know, five or six feet off the floor, it would then it would encounter the chimney system that would take it out the top of the roof. Um, so obviously there were some some drawbacks to that system and flooding your house full of smoke if the conditions weren't exactly right. But and then the the risk of fire. Um, so you know they quickly uh, fell out of common use because they're they're a little bit risky and they're quite inefficient actually uh, in terms of heating a room. So. Um, but that's really the oldest form of being able to cook and stay warm inside of a, a house from the late 1600s, early 1700s. And, and of course, well before that as well. Yeah, wow. You just don't see that outside of a museum. And it's so remarkable that you had a hand in recreating that. So mm-hmm. what brought me to talk to Tim this morning was he sent me an email Um saying he had a proposition uh, regarding the Krauts House. And I think most of our readers are very familiar um, with Dr. Frederick Krauts's house, but um, it was built in 1833 on the outskirts of what is now Altamont. And he was the first doctor in the area, and he both lived there and practiced medicine there for his entire career, and had several interesting intersections with um, local history. Um, He had um, Civil War soldiers who were um, encamped on his grounds, getting treated from wounds. Um, He had a, a great interest and was a supporter of the anti-rent wars. He had patients in the hill towns and believed very much in that cause. And the town of Gilderland and the village of Altamont together um, in 2006 paid $40,000 in back taxes to buy the house, which was at that time unoccupied and in fair condition, according to the mayor at the time, Jim Gone, but unfortunately, they did nothing with it, and so it has deteriorated, and they're now planning on tearing it down. But just, could you tell us what your proposition is for that? I'd be happy to. Yeah, so uh, you asked about my journey in timber framing at the start of the conversation, and part of that journey has been the opportunity to catalog um, dismantle and repurpose many, uh, uh, several dozen uh, timber frame structures all over the country from, from uh, you know, Martha's Vineyard to Colorado and Texas. I've been over the country doing this because the reality is that there's still a purpose um, and still a draw to, the, at, at a minimum, uh, the structural framework of whether it be an antique barn or an antique house. Um, so really my proposition is based in that and based around my experience um, in achieving such such things for other buildings. And, and I guess it's as simple as this. If we can't save the Crown's house as it stands and, we, and a full restoration is, is unachievable from a budgetary perspective, I feel we should at least at a minimum 
attempt to save the structural framework of the Crown's house and repurpose it. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be sitting on 120 acres of property here on Lane Hart Road. That was my grandfather's land and his grandfather's land before that. Um, so the, the framework there would certainly find a good home here, perhaps repurposed into a farm building or something of that nature. But there, I suppose there's also the opportunity if there were some local um, places, perhaps the Altamont Fair would want to um, consider using the frame there so that it'd be on more public display. You know, I don't know. I just think there's a there's an opportunity here uh, where not all is lost. I know that um, the article from last week in your, your publication stated that they were going to begin taking bids for demolition of the Crown South, which I was sad to hear. But then, of course, my brain kicks in and says, well, why not try to you know, give this uh, cloud of silver lining, so to speak, and see what we can do to at least salvage a portion of this um, and repurpose it for, like I said, either public or private use. So how exactly, if by some wonderful serendipitous uh, happening, if the town and village would agree to this, how exactly would it proceed? Um, Because with demolition, I, my idea of it is it's usually uh, a very messy kind of plowing down of a building and shattering it. How would would mm-hmm. you yourself um, be someone who would donate the labor or how would it be taken apart so that if you've done this in other parts of the country with other buildings, just kind of walk us through the process of um, – how how that works and i know it's worked before in gilderland i don't know if you know there used to be when i was in high school there was a bar called Polito's at the corner of um route 20 and 146 and it turns out that was a very very old structure itself um from i think the early 1800s and some out-of-state wealthy person ended up there's now a cumberland farms gas station convenience store there now but they ended up buying just as you were saying the the structure of it um and transporting it elsewhere. So I guess there's a market for that. But if you could just talk about what the process is in in doing that, how that works. Sure. Well, one of the bigger challenges um, with a house, of course, an, an antique house, is we have interior finishes and exterior finishes that need to be considered. Um, unlike a barn where typically the framework is totally exposed inside and there's only a single layer of perhaps wooden siding you know covering the outside of the timber so that you can actually see and assess what's happening there relatively easy in the case of a barn mm-hmm. um, the house represents a, a additional challenges so um there's, there's a few unknowns here but the general process would be um and and i'm even willing to partner with perhaps whoever gets the demolition contract i'm hoping they'll be you know open-hearted about um, trying to save the structural framework because it would, you know, maybe slow the process down by two to three days um, to salvage the framework. But I think it'd be worth doing. So uh, I'm saying this in a very long way, but basically the uh, the process would be to document the frame, um, catalog the timbers so that everyone needs to be labeled what what part goes where, um, and then really it's. It, it might fascinate people to see the process because it happens rather rapidly. Timber frames are usually um, pretty easy to tap the pegs out of the joints and everything comes back apart uh, just before, just like it would have been before it was raised in the first place. So you're just reverse engineering the structure uh, 
uh, and you might need heavy equipment to lower the heavier assemblies to the ground. And then from there, they just get dismantled and placed on a trailer and, and taken to where they're going to be in the future. So uh, that's a very simple way of describing the process. But again, it can be complicated uh, on a house frame. And I know asbestos is a consideration on the Crown's house. So that's one hurdle that um, we'd have to kind of brainstorm on and see what could be achieved there, um, you know, through the town. As I understand it, in the in the town coding, you have to uh, abate the asbestos completely before performing a demolition. So if we're going to go through the cost of abating the asbestos to demolish the building, why not abate the asbestos to try to salvage a portion of it? Yeah, as I understand, the asbestos is in the shingles. It isn't... Um in any other form. So I don't know enough about it, but it seems like maybe you could remove the shingles and then not have to worry about the asbestos. But if we could just back up, because this is so um, central both to the project and to your work, and you just know what it means and what it is, but you were talking about a post and beam structure and pegs. Could you just kind of unpack that a little for for us and talk about <laughs> what are the pegs sure. and what is the construction? Sure. So it, it, the simplest joint in timber framing is the mortise and tenon joint. That's simply making a rectangular hole in a piece of timber, making a corresponding tongue or tenon to fit into that corresponding hole. And then the manner in which they were secured was through uh, tree nails, actually trunnels as they're called sometimes, but a wooden peg is also a sufficient term. So you drill a, a round hole and you tap a wooden peg into said hole and that secures the mortise and tendon joint together. So this predates the use of mechanical fasteners, uh, uh, metallic fasteners of any type, nails or screws. Um, so it was the way of holding these joints together, um, strictly wood on wood and with a wood fastener. Wow. So there are no nails involved in this structure. There's no pounding together like we think of it today with you know right there, I mean, there was a period of time where nails were extremely expensive and extremely rare i mean a blacksmith had to make them one at a time on his anvil and you know that meant that they were very costly and not not uh you know easily procured by the general public so you'll find them in things like the uh you know what holds the siding to a building well Typically, that would be nails. But in terms of the structural framework, you know, the heavy timber section that I'm referring to, that actually does all the work of holding the house together and making the house work from a structural standpoint, um, that was all held together with um, wood. Fascinating. So I know one, there was a citizens group that formed and tried to save this house, but um, was ultimately unsuccessful. And along the way, and I think he's a friend of yours, there's a man named Jay Cougar Whitecloud who is apparently internationally known in, in restoring these kinds of buildings, and he was going to kind of spearhead this movement until it fell apart and um, work to um, educate people on this kind of construction, but I'm trying to remember the term he used, and I think he called it green. It Does that? No, maybe that's not it. The timber maybe wasn't totally dry or wasn't... Um, oh, yeah. Green, green green is the right term there. Okay. Yep. Could you could you just tell us a little about that? Yeah. So, um, there's a common misconception in 
timber framing, when people ask, uh, my grandfather had a great way of explaining this. So if you have a moment, I'll explain it the yes, way he would have. Yes, yeah. He would, t- he would tell a story. Somebody would ask, well, how long did they wait for the timbers to dry before they built a barn, before they built a house? And he said, well, let me just pose this question to you. Let's say it's the middle of July and your entire livelihood depends on your livestock and your livestock depend on a barn. And let's say your barn gets struck by lightning in the middle of harvest season. How long would you wait for the timbers to dry before you started building another barn? The answer is you wouldn't wait. You would, you would begin the process of rebuilding right away. And believe it or not, a majority, I mean, a vast majority, 99% or more of timber frames that are still built new in this country are built out of green material. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? So um, you had mentioned the idea, which I love, of perhaps, and I have no idea if the Altamont Fair would be interested in this, but, you know, having it somewhere the public could see it. And I think is there's a Dutch barn on the Altamont Fairgrounds that old songs use. Did you know anything about that or have anything to do with that? Uh, I was not involved in that Dutch barn project. I know my grandfather was. Um, but I've been in the barn. I certainly appreciate it. It is a beautiful structure. I, um, you know, to me, there's nothing more honest than a timber frame because everything is out there for you to see. You know, all the joinery is there, and I think that's part of the the marvel and the awe, uh, at least in my mind, of these structures. Is you get to see the craftsmanship of who built the building, even though it's two to three hundred years later. You know, we're the way we build today. We we tend to cover up all the the structural framework, because let's be honest, it's not really all that pretty to look at a two by four or two by six wall. Um, you know, but things were different back then. And I think that's, that's part of the uh, appeal. Yeah, well, the thing that's so stunning in that house we were talking about earlier, the Queeman's house, you can see all the posts and beams and joinery as part of the interior. And I did Mm -hmm. take a look at the Crown's house back before the town and village bought it. I had a friend who was interested in buying it before, you know, the municipalities had taken over. And, of course, that had all, you know, lath and plaster over it. You You couldn't see the structure. But your idea would be, if this was recreated either on your farmland or in a public place like the fairgrounds, that it would be just the structure and people would see the joinery. It wouldn't be to try to, like, save things like there's, you know, the entryway with the transom and, the, you know, some elements that are still original that are in that house. It would just be the, the post and beam structure of it. Right. I, I mean, I think we should always attempt to achieve full restoration on on old houses but the reality is that there's not a one-size-fits-all um, approach to any project um, so I'm totally open to really any form of um, you know repurposing of a structure that means that at least a portion of it will remain for, for use you know mm-hmm. for future generations to see so yes in, in, in unfortunately I haven't yet been able to see the inside of the crown's house so I'm I am really kind of just approaching this from an outsider's perspective and hoping that I can uh, contact the right parties uh, in Altamont in the coming week to to get an opportunity to see the inside and, and really fully assess the viability of, of such an approach. Um, so that, that would be the plan for the, for the upcoming week for me anyway. 
Yeah, I hope you keep us posted on it. And you might want to get in touch with Tom Capuano, who kind of spearheaded that citizens group. I don't know if they'd be useful to you or interested or not, but um, it's, to me, just to save any of it would be an exciting thing here at the last minute when our newspaper for so many years has tried so hard to get some interest in doing some sort of salvation. But maybe um, our time is going so fast, we should maybe conclude with some of the other work that you've done or are doing. Like you mentioned um, that you've done this all over the country. Are they, when people save these structures, how are they typically repurposed? Uh, can you just give us some examples of some of the things that you've done over the years? And I know you're working right now, you said, on a project in Vermont, but I don't know any of the details. But whatever ones you think sure. might be most interesting to to let our listeners know about that you've done. Sure. Um, so I would say uh, in 2013, I was fortunate enough to uh, be responsible for the restoration and raising of a uh, frame on Martha's Vineyard. So that was really just simply used as a agrarian building. It was a barn that was relocated by somebody other than me uh, to the island. And then I was fortunate enough to be the one to do the restoration work and the raising and, and siding and all that. So that was a barn that started as a barn, obviously, and ended up as a barn just somewhere else in the country. Uh, so that's one one form of repurposing. Uh, and that, so that, that comes to mind. how old was that barn? You know, that, uh, that would be uh, early 19th century. And it came from yeah. where before it went to Martha's I, Vineyard? Unfortunately for that frame, I'm not sure where it was dismantled from. I know it was somewhere in New England, but I'm not, I couldn't uh, because, specify. But the next one I'm going to share with you, I, I know a lot more details about um, okay. because I was involved in the, in the dismantling and the, the re-raising. So there's a, a absolutely magnificent barn, perhaps one of the largest in the country. Uh, built in the style that it's built in. It's 60 feet wide, it's 72 feet long, and in the 60-foot width, there's a single uh, single length of a white oak timber that's 13 by 13 inches square. So you have to picture that, a, a 13 by 13 square that's 60 feet long. Wow. And there's, there's five of those in this, this building as a whole, making up the 72 feet in length. Uh, so that frame was from uh, Alliance, Ohio, and that was dismantled in 2013, and it was moved to the town of Katy, Texas, and it's currently owned by uh, Blake and Stacy Beckendorf, and they operate a wedding venue called Beckendorf Farms, uh, again, right in the town of Katy, Texas, and they have a, a beautiful website, and um, if people are interested, they can see plenty of pictures of of part of the process and what they've turned it into. It really, if you wanted to find the the ideal owners for a barn, um, they fit the bill and they've done a great job with it and really done, done the uh, frame justice in my opinion. So do you notice certain building styles in certain parts of the country? I know this particular area has Dutch barns, which I think are unique to this area. I may be wrong, but do you notice as you do these projects that there are certain things that, say, a barn in Ohio is different than a barn in Texas or a barn in New England is different than, or are there certain common elements? Yeah, certainly. Well, I mean, that's that's one of the fascinating things, really, to think that um, 
New England was kind of the center of humanity here in the New World for quite some time. And you had a bunch of different, you know, uh, cultures immigrating over here and bringing their own forms of agricultural practices and building techniques with them. So, you know, you can travel to sections of Vermont and New Hampshire and find some very interesting uh, what would be called principal raptor frames, which would be difficult for me to describe exactly what they are over the phone, but um, they're far different from the Dutch barn, which you're correct, are found, you know, in the Mohawk Valley, the Hudson River Valley, and, and even down in the New Jersey to some extent. Um, so they're, they're unique to this area. And then you get into Pennsylvania, and you've got Pennsylvania bank barns, which are completely different uh, in their use. Then you go out towards Ohio, and, and you get different uses there. But even interestingly beyond that is, the time periods in which they were built, you know, the older buildings are heavily timber frames, newer buildings. When New York City was really booming, they were designed specifically for hay storage. So then you then you end up with these expansive, just massive cavernous barns. Um, like like the one over in New Scotland is a great example. And I'm the name is escaping me right now, but the, the barn that got moved a few years ago. Right. Um, you know, would have been a massive, absolutely massive amount of hay storage in there. So. Yes, you find different styles all over the country. And, and if you go too far south, you have to realize that timber wasn't as easily available down there as it was here. So a lot of a lot of masonry buildings were built, you know, in the in the southern part of the country in Texas and whatnot. You don't really see a lot of heavily timbered um, buildings down that way. Fascinating. And you know what I'd like to close with? I thought of it because you mentioned this uh, wedding venue in Katy, Texas. And I know when I was talking, you know, about setting up a picture of you to run with this, you said, oh, it'd be great to have it in the barn I built for my wedding. (laughs) So not many of us, many of us are married, but I think few of us have built a barn for our wedding. So can you just tell us a little about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, So... It was 2017, and my wife and I decided to get married, and uh, we needed the space to do it. We knew we wanted to get married on the farm, and of course, we shopped around for tent rentals and went all the normal routes um, for for trying to make that work with the number of guests we had, and we were kind of taken aback by the cost of renting a tent, so then we we kind of jokingly said, well, why don't we just build a building? Okay, well, we, we need a farm building anyway, so we can repurpose it after we get married, but then the building kind of grew and grew and grew and the footprint got bigger and bigger to accommodate all of our guests. Uh, so in the end, we ended up building a 40 by 60 uh, building, which happens to sit on the same spot that my grandfather had built uh, a building to house his sawmill back in the 60s, I believe, um, which that had fallen down already. And so we decided to kind of put something back on the same spot with the same footprint. And, uh, you know, now we use it for farm use for for uh, you know our freezer space and things like that. So, but yes, we did end up getting married in there uh, in 2017. And you built this barn yourself? I did. I mean, I had some help. I had, I had, uh, you know, Jay was Jay was here at that time, so he was very helpful in in getting that done. Um, and you know, I had family and friends and whatnot that pitched in whenever we needed it. We had plenty of hands on deck for the raising and. Um, and getting, you know, siding on and everything like that. It was, it was an undertaking because we started, uh, the first of August and we got married on October 14th. So in about two, 
two and a half months, you know, we went from nothing to a 40 by 60 structure that was ready to have a wedding. <laughs> well, I'm reminded of the story you told of your grandfather's lightning struck and the farmer depends on this barn and has to build it quickly. And here the lightning was Cupid, you know, the passionate right. love and you had to get it built. Oh, I just think that's a wonderful story. Well, Tim, thank you so much. Do you have any closing thoughts for us? Uh, well, just really back to the Crown Tops, I'm, I'm really hoping that we can achieve something great for the community here, even if it means saving at least the structural framework. I think that's uh, at least would be somewhat of a fitting end for a historic house in Altamont. I think there's far too many that are lost altogether. So, you know, it may not be the ideal solution, but it's a solution that will allow us to preserve something for future generations to enjoy. And I think that, you know, if we did a little more of that, uh, as a whole in society, I think we'd be far better off.